Gresham College presents Saving the 20th Century by Professor Simon Thurley. Well, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice to um, see you. This is the first of my lectures this year, and um, I've decided to take a little bit of a, a break from my great historical sweeps that I've been doing for the last um, two or three years, and actually as far as I'm concerned anyway, um, look backwards a little bit over the last uh, 13 years of my career when I was uh, chief executive of English Heritage. And uh, in those 13 years, uh, I confronted a wide range of big, contentious, knotty, difficult issues as far as our historic buildings in this country are concerned. Um, 16,000 planning applications every year uh, were dealt with by uh, what was English heritage and what is now historic England. And uh, of those 16,000, um, half a dozen or so every year ended up being monstrously contentious and difficult. And those are the ones that ended up on my desk. And in the next um, four lectures, I'm going to be talking about some of the big issues that uh, I think confront us as a society, looking at our historic building stock. And tonight, I am starting with what I actually genuinely think is the most uh, controversial and difficult area of modern conservation practice and, de and debate, which is the whole issue about saving the 20th century, uh, deciding to preserve in some way the architecture of a previous generation has, of course, always been rather difficult and unpopular. The Victorians hated Regency buildings, and uh, Victorian buildings in their turn were hated uh, after the Second World War. So just simply in terms of the swing of the generational pendulum of taste, we are on an uphill struggle to list and conserve post-war architecture. But in terms of uh, the late 20th century, and particularly in terms of modernist architecture, which is basically what I'm going to be talking about this evening, we are facing a problem at once more complex and more subtle than that. Modernist architecture and its more aggressive subset, brutalist architecture, are styles that came about through circumstances quite different from any that came uh, before in England. And this is because the roots of the style were not native roots. Now, I say this not in a sort of xenophobic sense, but in the sense that the ideas and aspirations that lay behind modernism were not shared by the majority of people who saw it being built. Architects of the period 1950 to 1970 had, in fact, successfully persuaded the power elites of the time that they had the solution to various social and economic problems, and they were given free reign to conduct an experiment on the population who initially were tentatively optimistic about what they saw, but who quickly uh, became suspicious and then ultimately outright hostile. As political support for modernism collapsed, so we were left with a large quantity of buildings that had only ever had very shallow roots in society. This, I think, was a unique situation. And the passing of time has made very shallow inroads into the unpopularity of modernist buildings. Although I think there are many educated people in their 20s and 30s who now 
appreciate, admire, even love modernist design, um, including the great brutalist buildings of the day, we are probably um, at a high water of support and admiration because the popular imagination has not been captured and maybe never will be. And this is why when modernist buildings are listed, or worse, when public money is spent on them, there is a storm of protest. I remember uh, the rage directed at English Heritage when uh, we decided um, to put a huge amount of effort to kickstart the restoration of the Park Hill Flats in Sheffield, um, a subject which I will end this lecture on this evening. The bile and the anger directed towards us, and actually to me personally, took us all aback. Post-war modernism is quite simply ghastly modern architecture to most people today. So we are dealing with something um, unusual and something interesting and something challenging, to say the least. And tonight, I want to ask whether we are going about it in the right way, and if not, what improvements we need to make uh, to the way we deal with conserving the legacy of British modernism. I want to start uh, by talking about a listed building consent case that English Heritage considered in 2004 to 5. This was an application for listed building and conservation area consent for the demolition and redevelopment of the Grade 2 listed Southside Halls of Residence, which you see on the screen here. They were built for Imperial College by Shepherd Robson Architects between 1960 and 1968. It was listed because uh, of the way that they introduced the style of Le Corbusier to university architecture, fusing the principles of Oxbridge planning with great slab blocks of reinforced concrete. Imperial College, the owners, argued that the student accommodation had, from the very start, demonstrated serious design, technical and functional flaws. In fact, to such an extent that retaining this building uh, in its present form, or even heavily remodelled, would be questionable both functionally and uh, economically. And interestingly, this was a view that ultimately was accepted by English heritage. This actually was an extraordinary decision on the face of it. For English heritage to su support a listed building consent application for the complete demolition of a Grade 2 listed building that everybody agreed was, in fact, possible to repair, although at a £40 million cost. On the economic side, this is a problem actually faced by hundreds of highly graded buildings every single year. The fact that the repair costs are greater than the eventual value of the building. So, what about um, a, a fictional but entirely plausible Grade 1 listed medieval church in the middle of nowhere? This church, which we're talking about, has a £1 million repair bill. Even if permission could be granted for its conversion into a house, it would only perhaps be worth £100,000 at the most. So, do we say, let's demolish it? Do we say, functionally, this church is useless. 
Liturgical practice has changed so much since the 13th century that uh, it is flawed beyond adaptation. No, of course we don't say that. What we do is we spend a million pounds on fixing the church. So why would we contemplate uh, exactly the opposite conclusion for Southside Halls of Residence? Are there some special factors at work here? Does modernism need its own individual philosophy of conservation? Well, these questions were some of a wider group of problems that stimulated English heritage to start a project to try and codify its conservation philosophy into a set of understandable principles. These principles are based on a basic premise that places should be managed to sustain significance. This idea of significance uh, is now a very familiar and widely accepted concept. So to understand the significance of any place, whether it's a building like Southside Halls of Residence, an archaeological landscape or an urban conservation area, it's necessary to establish its value to society. And that value comprises both the relative value of its individual components and the value of the whole thing in relation to other places. And this exercise, looking at the value, requires us to measure its significance against a set of values that we, as a society, hold generally valid. And if we can do this, we can perhaps overcome the individualistic, stylistic and dogmatic attitudes that tend to dominate and confuse arguments about conservation. So uh, English Heritage uh, adopted four values as the basis for evaluating the historic significance of a place. Evidential value, historical value, aesthetic value, and communal value. Now, clearly, these are not the only values that can be used to assess whether uh, a place has significance or not, but I think they are the values that encapsulate the heritage aspects. There are other values such as uh, utility, um, economy, environmental sustainability. And all these other ones are quite often used in the planning uh, system to decide what to do about a building or a place. Um, But the four heritage values here, I think, can be applied to any development of any age to uh, help us make a judgment about how significant it is. So let me just, just, just um, elaborate, just very, very briefly. I'm not going to dwell on this, but very briefly, because it's an important point, uh, what these values m- mean. So uh, evidential value. This is a photograph of um, that wonderful uh, staircase in the centre of Peter Jones um, in Sloan Square. Um, there is evidential value in the building, because the, the solidity, the actual physical fabric there... Um, is the thing that is valuable uh, uh, about uh, that uh, uh, structure. There may be historic value in a building. Uh, This is the Boots factory in Nottingham, uh, the first of its kind. Therefore, there's a historic value in that structure. Um, Or historic value might lie in the fact that the building is illustrative in some way of a particular pivotal point in history. Buildings might be associated with particular events, institutions, activities... Um, uh, uh, for instance, here's the Commonwealth Institute uh, in Kensington High Street, 
um, which encapsulates all the optimism behind the foundation of the um, Commonwealth. And I'll come back to talk about that building a little bit later. So evidential value, historical value, and then you have aesthetic values. Uh, this is center point with its rigorous design uh, values, or you could have uh, somewhere like the ziggurat uh, buildings at um, the University of East Anglia, which um, has a more sort of fortuitous or cumulative aesthetic value in the relationship to the um, landscape. And then finally, uh, you can have communal values. Um, this is a, a, a photograph of the, the University of um, Sussex, uh, uh, um, uh, buildings heralding a new era of greater access to higher education. Um, here's Coventry Cathedral. Um, huge uh, emotional value, communal value put on this building for what it represents um, after the bombing of, uh, of Coventry and then the recreation of this cathedral um, next door to the old bombed-out uh, medieval building. So how can these four values help us make decisions about buildings like Southside Halls of Residence? Well, there's a really important point here, and that is that looking at values raises the debate about conservation above the Victorian philosophy of uh, William Morris and John Ruskin, for whom everything was based on the retention of the original fabric of the building. Almost all conservation philosophy since the foundation of the SPAB in 1871 has been based on the acceptance of the fact that the retention of the original fabric is the primary object and is a good thing. In fact, uh, modern conservation legislation takes exactly the, start, the same starting point. Your job is to protect the original physical object itself. But what I'm going to uh, suggest this evening is that this assumption has to be questioned, particularly when we're dealing with a building like the Southside Halls of Residence. Now, the origins of this dilemma about the primacy of original fabric are actually found in the structures of the Industrial Revolution, just like the philosophy of modernism itself. Take the um, former Grade 1 listed West Pier at Brighton as an example. The individual iron components of the pier, all mass-produced and many one uh, of hundreds of identical components, just must have a lesser historical significance than an individually carved stone roof boss in the nave of a medieval cathedral. The pier's components were always, I think, to an extent sacrificial. They could be unbolted and replaced if they corroded, deflected or suffered some damage. Their replacement by a new iron component didn't in any way diminish the authenticity or the significance of the pier. In other words, the design of the pier, its aesthetic value, was more important than its evidential value. Another very good example of this is the high-level bridge in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 
um, an incredible and very important engineering feat, but actually of overwhelming community value to people who live in Newcastle, because it's so, so symbolic of the city itself. For years and years, iron components have been replaced by steel ones, eroding its evidential value almost completely, but retaining its position of one of the great um, icons of Newcastle upon time. So, does this mean that uh, industrial and modernist buildings inherently have a low evidential value as a group? Well, we would be rushing on if, on the basis of what I've said so far, this was our conclusion. But what I want to do is to start by asking a much wider question, which is, is there something inherent in the design of British modernist buildings that makes them different when we consider their conservation? Now, up until the late 19th century, there were very few highly specialised buildings. There were places where people lived, places where people worshipped, places where business was transacted, and places where things were made. And some of these places had very special features, but essentially the variation in building types was extremely limited. But from the 1880s, there were more and more specialised building types, more buildings made for very specific functions, buildings that were really very unsuitable for any other use than the function that they had been designed for. And after the Second World War, such buildings multiplied as architects became more and more responsive to very specific functions. And so these buildings became social and technological machines. I'll give you an example of one that uh, I had to deal with. Here you have an amazing uh, industrial building, building R133 at Farnborough, the former Royal Aircraft Establishment. This building houses, or more technically, I should say, is a transonic wind tunnel containing a tiny chamber, only eight foot by six foot, where scale models of aircraft could be subjected to wind speeds faster than the speed of sound. This building is basically a machine, utterly inflexible in every way. So when it was uh, listed, in fact, it wasn't listed, it was scheduled, recognising that it could never be used for anything other than uh, being a, a monument when it stopped being used as a, 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 as a wind tunnel. At the other end of the scale, from the um, transonic wind tunnel, is uh, a building in Scotland. This is St Peter's Roman Catholic Seminary at Cardross uh, in Argyll. Um, it, it's a modernist megastructure with a massive church, which you see here at its centre, and it's surrounded by the cells of the seminarians at upper levels. Brilliantly designed for one purpose, and now, as you see from this picture, utterly dereliction, um, uh, it now has no purpose. So I think in this way, post-war buildings are inherently less flexible and less adaptable than earlier buildings, which were much more generic in function. And this 
of course, was a very important argument in considering the Southside Hall's residence. The case for demolition was not put in terms of the value of the fabric, but in terms of the effectiveness and suitability of its function and the performance of its design. This is uh, another London case, the Grade 2 Star Crystal Palace National Sports Centre, originally proposed for demolition by the London Development Agency as a building which was functionally defunct. The wet uh, sports area and the dry sports area were not adequately separated, giving really bad environmental problems. And catastrophically, the swimming pool was three and a half inches too short to comply with the Olympic regulations. (laughs) Um, And so this and a host of other performance uh, uh, issues meant that they wanted to demolish the building. The cost um, uh, of fixing it, uh, of dealing with all these issues, was going to be £40 million. Uh, It cost a million pounds a year to run. Uh, And so it was seen as as a building that was much better just to get rid of. So the difficulty with a building like this is that it has this incredibly specific function with a very specific design, which makes adaptation very uh, expensive uh, and or difficult. There are two linked problems to this. Many of the most um, interesting and innovative early modernist buildings were built quickly and were built on the cheap. Many during the 1950s, like Peter and Alison Smithson's famous school at Hunstanton, which had to uh, justify every inch of steel that it was used. And as a result, a building like this was engineered very sparsely with materials that sometimes didn't have a long lifespan. The original economical construction of these structures has often been compounded by an almost total lack of proper planned maintenance, which has exacerbated the original design uh, faults. So take, uh, take this building. This uh, amazing thing is the Geoffrey Chaucer School, grade two listed building in Harper Street, um, SE1. Uh, here is the extraordinary pentagonal assembly hall, which is attached to a very innovative uh, gymnasium. This uh, building was built pushing the technical capabilities of the materials to their very limits, to a design never before contemplated for a school, and I suspect never contemplated afterwards. Uh, These buildings were highly experimental, and legitimately it can be argued that they have failed like the cladding on the Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King in Liverpool, or the rainwater drainage systems on the uh, roof of the Central Pavilion uh, at the Commonwealth Institute in Kensington. Fundamental um, design faults. It would be possible uh, to argue that in the past, uh, buildings economically designed of innovative structure that have failed, and that buildings with uh, design faults have just been allowed to be tossed into the waste paper basket of architectural history. Just think of the various catastrophic failures of Victorian architecture that stood and fell. Here is the uh, disastrous Millbank Penitentiary, great prison uh, built uh, uh, on the site of um, Tate Britain, 
Our predecessors uh, let this go, and we now look back with a sense of, uh, of relief. Thank goodness we don't have to uh, spend our time keeping that particular uh, monstrosity standing. But here I think we come to an incredibly important point. When we're dealing with buildings of the Victorian era or earlier, we're looking at a building stock that has already been rid of the architectural flops. There's been a process of natural selection in which uh, thousands of buildings that were built or designed poorly have already fallen down or, or have already been modified and the faults rectified. So, this is James Wyatt's uh, masterpiece, Font Hill Abbey, a building of unquestioned uh, brilliance, historical importance, even genius. It started to fall down and then finally collapsed in 1825, long before um, listing of buildings was invented or even contemplated. Then, uh, even earlier, in February 1322, the central tower of Ely Cathedral collapsed, and when it came to reconstructing it, it was decided to build uh, an octagon of stone with a much lighter timber structure on top, a work of genius, but not the original intended crowning feature. So uh, the cathedral we have today has long ago been rid of its design and engineering faults. But when we're dealing with buildings that are only 50 or 60 years old, we're often confronting design flaws or poor workmanship that are only just coming to light or only just in the process of being rectified. This, again, challenges our perception of authenticity. Most historic buildings, by which I mean buildings more than 100 years old, have been adapted and modified to iron out design and construction flaws. And so their so-called original state is, in fact, an altered state in which they now perform well. In fact, they often perform better than when they were originally completed. Late 20th century buildings are still going through this sort of Darwinian process of natural selection that will decide whether they survive, having been adapted, or whether they will just die, being unsuited to their function. So criticising these buildings for their design flaws might be seen as being rather unfair. Most of the uh, buildings that I've given as examples so far, are public buildings or private commissions that were built as monuments, but either because of experimental materials or building techniques um, that uh, were untested, um, the buildings turned out to be imperfect. But there are a couple of other categories we need to, dis uh, to consider. And the first of these are uh, late 20th century buildings that were built for a specific allotted lifespan or specific design life. Now, of course, there were several motivations why this might have been so. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, to solve the housing crisis, prefabricated homes were constructed um, by local authorities, uh, and they were very clear that these buildings only had a 10-year life. I love this image, 
one of the most famous images at the end of the war. This is uh, the arrival home of gunner Hector Murdoch. It's, it's his birthday. He spent three years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And this is his wife, Rosanna, dressed up for the occasion with a little boy he'd never even met, uh, running down the garden path to welcome him. And in the background is their house on the Excalibur Estate in Catford, South London, one of 156,622 such prefabricated houses built after the 1944 Housing Act. In 2009, six of these houses at the Excalibur Estate were actually listed. Amazing, they were still standing, but they were. (laughs) The ones that were accepted for listing out of a much larger number that were originally proposed, were ones that retained original features internally and had not had replacement windows and doors. So in this bizarre turn of events, the ministers who ultimately decide on what's going to be listed or not um, and who accepted uh, the recommendations applied the 19th century criteria to a prefabricated house exactly the same criteria that they would have applied to a Georgian mansion. In other words, how much original fabric actually uh, survived. Well, I would ask whether this was a remotely appropriate uh, response. At the time, uh, we at English Heritage argued that the estate should be made a conservation area. And this would uh, have allowed the houses to be modified, modernised and improved... Uh, the original fabric to be replaced where necessary, while retaining the overall uh, impression of one of these post-war prefabricated estates, because that was where the value, where the significance lay. Let's um, look at uh, another similar uh, uh, example, but one one step removed. This is uh, a type of building which didn't even have a designated lifespan, because they were built to be absolutely temporary. Many, many Second World War buildings fall into this category, structures that were erected uh, at a time of national emergency with no thought that they would be standing in 10 years' time, let alone in 70 years' time. So this is a, a case that I spend a huge amount of energy on. This is the Harperley Prisoner of War Camp, in County Durham, now the most complete prisoner of war camp remaining in England out of about 100 or so original um, specially made uh, prisoner of war camps. You can see it's now in a very poor condition, as you would expect from a prisoner of war camp that was built in a great hurry in 1943 by Italian prisoners of war under duress in a period when only incredibly poor Uh, building materials were actually available. Two of the huts have interesting interiors. The theatre, which you see here, and the canteen. The others are utterly functional and have been used for various things, including for most of their life, uh, as a chicken farm. Uh, The authenticity of this group of buildings, which you see, I think, here best in an aerial photograph, is like the Escalibur estate, for its landscape value, 
Its group value, the feeling and the atmosphere that it gives of a prisoner of war camp is absolutely fantastic. The huts themselves, which you see here in a totally derelict state, have reinforced concrete frames, and it wouldn't matter, in my view, if the cladding were all replaced with uh, modern materials uh, where that was necessary. And this, of course, is actually what happened at Bletchley Park, the home of the codebreakers during the Second World War. These huts, uh, unlike uh, those at Harperley, were all made of timber, and the rotten wood, in some cases, uh, couldn't be repaired. Reclaimed uh, and new timber work was added, steel strengthening introduced, uh, and even uh, inside um, the paintwork on the ceiling, the new paintwork, was distressed down to make um, the new painted ceilings look as if they'd been tobacco set stained by all the code breakers puffing at their cigarettes, trying to solve the terrible um, sort of crossword problems they had to do every day. So, uh, late 20th century buildings are normally functionally inflexible. They may not have completed their sort of Darwinian process of natural selection that allowed adaptation and improvement. They may have been designed for a fixed lifespan, or they may have been completely temporary. There is then a fifth uh, important but rather rare category, and this uh, is a category uh, which, uh, of buildings that were philosophically designed to self-destruct. Because post-war modernism, at its most utopian, built in obsolescence to their structures. Because some architects believed that past generations had somehow encumbered society with ideas and buildings that were now outmoded and that were, in fact, holding the world back. And therefore, these buildings that were designed, as I've said, very sort of sparsely, very leanly, were actually deliberately designed only to serve one generation and then be uh, replaced. Whilst this theoretical strand of modernism is not one that's easy to draw out, the very fact that modernist buildings have this strong theoretical content brings their own problems. Architectural teaching, indeed art historical study, has become increasingly fascinated by theoretical aspects. This is a particularly beguiling aspect to late 20th century architecture, because unlike other periods, almost any building of significance built by a successful architect, we know something about their philosophical approach. In fact, in most cases, I think we know rather a lot more than we might want to know about their philosophy. As a consequence, in considering uh, conservation issues, the philosophy behind the building can end up being as important as the building itself. And this, of course, is a complete reversal of the 19th century notion of conservation, because here we have people arguing that it isn't the structure that's important, that's not important at all, the thing we should be conserving is the idea behind it. So, here we come to a case that brought with it 
more vitriol than any other case I had to contend with in 13 years at the head of English heritage. This is uh, Robin Hood Gardens uh, in Poplar in London. Now, Robin Hood Gardens is two large blocks of flats arranged on seven and ten stories with deck access and is regarded uh, by many to be the embodiment of British brutalism. It was designed by Peter and Alison Smithson, whose Hunstanton School we looked at um, about 15 minutes ago. Now, the Smithsons belonged, uh, there they are, to a generation of architects who acknowledged the original masters, the genius of the original masters of modernism, such as Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe, but they subjected their work to an intense critical re-evaluation in the search for new directions. The Smithson's critical writings were, in fact, much more important than their actual buildings. Their early success in the com- uh, competition for the Hunstanton School in Norfolk, which we've just seen, was followed by a long string of competition failures. They didn't get Coventry Cathedral. They didn't get the Golden Lane housing estate just over there. You can see it on the way out if you want. They didn't get Sheffield University. They didn't get Sydney Opera House, just to name the most important uh, competitions that they didn't win. But virtually every um, history of post-war British architecture features the Smithson's competition schemes for Golden Lane and Sheffield University with pages and pages of commentary while not even mentioning or even illustrating the projects that actually won the competitions and the projects that were actually built. (laughs) Remarkably, these two architects achieved all the recognition that goes to the winners without having the responsibility of having to turn their concepts into real buildings or finding out whether they worked. In fact, if you pick up their own books, they are dominated by drawings of their unrealised projects, embellished with lots of photographs of themselves. (laughs) The result of this incredibly unusual situation has been to give the Smithsons uh, a sort of cult status amongst the architectural architectural cognoscenti. So at uh, Robin Hood Gardens, which you see here, this cult couple finally secured a real commission, a massive public housing scheme. And this uh, uh, was one 15 years after their theoretical writings had advocated streets in the sky, the streets in the sky principle for public housing, uh, which they developed in their unrealised scheme for Golden uh, Lane um, in the City of London, just over there. And of course, the streets in the sky are these um, deck access sort of corridors here, which allows you to go to, to the front doors. You know, here are the streets in the sky, um, which that was the basis of their, sort of, uh, of their design and their sort of philosophical um, positioning. Um, but by the time they designed Robin Hood Gardens, uh, both artic- architects and critics had moved on. The principles they had once advocated had been built uh, at Park Hill in Sheffield, And uh, by the time this building went up, streets in the air was a largely discredited concept. In terms of the theory uh, and practice of progressive housing, Robin Hood Gardens 
was obsolete even before its first tenants had moved in. Well, in 2008, in response to a mounting threat to redevelop the site, an application for listing was put in and was rejected by English Heritage and by the government. The reasons for this were that the buildings were not uh, not only uh, innovative for the time, which is an incredibly important criteria for listing, but it was actually a poor design. There were other deck access housing schemes of a much higher quality and of a much earlier date, and these were already listed. However, a campaign was mounted to list the building because it embodied the ideas of the Smithsons. The building uh, still stands just, but with a certificate of immunity from listing, and uh, it is likely that it will soon be demolished and replaced with a new housing scheme. Now, the listing criteria for modernist buildings are infinitely tougher than for any building built before 1800. For buildings put up before 1800, if they are in anything like their original state uh, and uh, of an average quality, they qualify for listing. For modernist buildings, they have to demonstrate that their significance is unusually high. And this means that listed modernist buildings are generally the exceptional and not just the ordinary products of their age. And this brings us right back to my original dilemma, the Southside Halls of Residence. In terms of really high-quality modernist buildings that are basically no longer fit for purpose, you have two avenues to go down. The first one is the one that demands that a building performs well before it is listed. In other words, you take the view that if a building isn't performing well, either structurally or functionally, or in some cases neither, it's a poor building and it hasn't actually made the high bar to be a building of special significance and it shouldn't be listed. QED. There's no problem, you simply get rid of it. The other avenue is to list it for its importance and then deal with the issues of performance through the planning system uh, when the issues arise. Now, both these uh, situations have been faced, and I'm going to give you examples of both that I have um, encountered. The first is the case of Pimlico School. Designed in 1964 in the architect's department of the Greater London uh, Council under the leadership of John Bancroft, It opened uh, six years later, in September 1970, and won various awards for its architectural quality. From the outside, it's often been compared to a battleship or an aircraft carrier, but inside it was incredibly uh, ingeniously planned, uh, integrating classrooms, gymnasia, and even a swimming pool. Against English heritage advice, it was granted uh, immunity from listing by the then Heritage Minister, Lord Mackintosh, in 2003. I was there when Andrew Mackintosh uh, looked at the building, which uh, he was predisposed to dislike, I think, on stylistic grounds. But very importantly, after his visit, he declared that the building had catastrophic design flaws and was functionally unfit to be a school. And on this basis, 
he argued that the building could not be of special interest because a central component of successful architecture was its performance, and the performance of this building was flawed both structurally and functionally. Well, this was a very sort of contentious uh, uh, ruling, and it was actually challenged in the courts, went right up through the court system, by both the building supporters uh, and by um, English Heritage, and it was ruled uh, by uh, the judges that he was entitled to take into account design flaws in deciding whether to list a building or not. So, in this example, the building's flaws, and there were unquestionably flaws, meant that it wasn't even protected, and it has now been demolished and replaced. My second example is the Commonwealth Institute in Kensington, built in 1960 to 1962 to the designs of RMJM, Ramjam Architects. It was recognised from the start that this uh, was an exceptionally interesting and important building. And in fact, it was one of the very first tranche of post-war buildings to be listed in 1988. And it was listed at grade two star, a very, very high listing for a modern building. Just one of a tiny, tiny, tiny handful of post-war buildings listed so high. Well, in the 1990s, the Commonwealth Institute wanted to change its focus and change its building. And you can see uh, this photograph here of the inside of the building. This is a point that I made um, earlier on about the inflexibility of the design of these, many of these buildings. It was designed as an exhibition hall, brilliant, brilliant design, but clearly quite difficult to adapt that for some other type of use. And this triggered nearly 20 years of debate and false starts while the trustees uh, decided that they wanted uh, to get out of the site, to sell it, and to use the cash, they realised, to run uh, educational projects across the Commonwealth. So the trustees decided uh, that they couldn't adapt their building, it was too inflexible, that they didn't want it, uh, and they uh, decided they wanted to realise the maximum amount of money they possibly could out of its uh, sale. And in doing that, they believed that the fact that it was grade two listed would reduce the value of the building and therefore reduce the uh, uh, money that they could get to put into their um, uh, 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 educational projects. So uh, they lodged an application for delisting the whole site in 2005. And we very robustly uh, uh, advised the government that this was completely uh, unacceptable and that, in fact, after the Royal Festival Hall, that this was the most uh, important listed building of its age. Tessa Jowell, uh, remember her, who was the uh, Secretary of State at the time, uh, accepted our advice and she rejected this application for delisting in July 2005. Then she faced the full wrath of the Commonwealth Institute trustees, a group of incredibly well-placed people led by an absolutely determined uh, chair of trustees whose wrath actually I faced on a number of occasions too, and that's a completely different story. These trustees managed to persuade no less than the Prime Minister that the building should be uh, uh, delisted, 
and a working party of the Cabinet Office and Number 10 uh, uh, um, reported in May 2006, less than a year after Tessa Jowell had upheld its listed status, that they were going to pass an Act of Parliament to overrule English heritage advice and delist the building. Well, luckily, um, the trustees agreed to pursue a dual track. Whilst uh, they were um, hoping uh, for um, legislation to be brought forward, they um, also were looking for a buyer for the site. I suspect that they didn't uh, entirely trust themselves to a political promise to bring forward legislation rapidly. I think they probably felt that the legislation could have taken months or maybe even years, particularly with English heritage and the entire conservation world up in arms at the suggestion that an act of parliament should be pushed through, and lots of MPs and peers um, horrified at the implications of this. So, at the same time as their bill was being considered, was grinding its way um, uh, towards getting into the legislative programme, they commissioned um, a master plan for the site and put it on the market. Well, in April 2007, it was sold to a development consortium who knew what they were doing with such a building. Their scheme uh, was not without its critics, uh, but what the um, scheme did was surround the main building with new residential blocks, um, and these produced enough profit for the developer, as well as enough cash, to pass on to the historic building, allowing the design museum to take it on. So um, here's Kensington High Street, there is the main exhibition hall, and here are these new blocks that were built, residential blocks in the garden. The garden was actually um, a listed landscape in itself, and in order to build these blocks, there was a, um, a, a, a sort of an administration building at the back of the, the exhibition hall that was also listed that had to be demolished. So quite a lot of um, compromise made, but uh, the principal building uh, found a new use. The residential blocks generated enough money to make the whole scheme work, and the new museum, the design museum, will open uh, in the former Commonwealth um, Institute next month. The lesson of this extremely grubby case was that it was never necessary to worry about delisting because the planning system is the place where the adaptation of a listed building is democratically discussed and determined. In the end, it was possible for the charity to have their cash and for a really good and appropriate use to be found for the building, admittedly, um, although the building had to be altered for the purpose. So now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I need to draw together the strands and come to some conclusions. The principal question raised by my survey of recent cases must be, are post-war modernist buildings in some way different to other types of historic buildings? And my answer to this is yes, they are. If this is the case, do you apply different conservation principles when you consider how to change them? And I think the answer is yes, you do. To make many modernist buildings suitable 
for contemporary use, you need to justify greater intervention than you might do in other types of historic building. And in those interventions, the value placed on the original fabric is proportionally lower. Until you accept this fact, the arguments about 20th century buildings will continue to be intractable. And until you accept this, it will be almost impossible to get off the starting blocks to make the proper argument for listing. You see, the cases of both the Commonwealth Institute and the Pimlico School show what happens when politicians and decision makers imagine that listing stops a building from being altered. Because it just doesn't. I'm going to end with three slides, which hopefully makes this point. Uh, Oh, that's not one of the slides. That is just a nice picture of the Commonwealth Institute and a new building. Uh, Here is uh, the Park Hill Flats in Sheffield, uh, built between 1957 and 1961. Uh, Some of you may know the building. It's an absolutely massive uh, public housing development on a gigantic scale. Um, And when it was listed, there was a huge amount of uh, controversy. Here are the flats in the process of refurbishment. Uh, They are being converted into uh, viable, fashionable dwellings for the 21st century. And here, the issue of the uh, value and significance of the building had to be debated. What was it? that was significant about these flats? And uh, the answer uh, was the deck access. For those of you who've been there, these incredibly wide streets in the sky which provide um, access to the flats. Uh, The the structural grid plan, the fact that these, uh, many of them were duplex apartments, all of that is preserved within the structure, whilst uh, the adaptation allowed the flats, as you see them there um, now, to be converted um, for uh, 21st century life. On the one hand, there was a huge loss of fabric, but on the other, I think a visit there today shows that there was very little loss of meaning. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, saving the 20th century, um, extremely uh, uh, controversial area, um, and we have a few minutes uh, which we can debate what I've just said. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.